0: the order in which things happen as you bring up a pod can kind of get messed up if you have sidecars, You and know, maybe you haven't just got your service mesh sidecar, you might also have logging and uh, security tooling. There's a whole series of different tools that have traditionally been implemented using sidecars, and they can kind of get in each other's way.
1: Welcome back to DevOps Sauna. Uh, We've got Mark and Andy here today. Hello, hello. We're just back from summer holiday in Finland. Uh, It was a glorious summer. And uh, just before we left, we recorded a podcast with Liz Rice talking about Cilium. Um, What's been happening with Cilium, Andy?
2: So we wanted to get this podcast out now because Cilium has just released 1.12, which includes the service mesh,
1: which is what we were speaking with Liz about. This one made me nervous. I'm used to talking about people and, and cultures, and I can I can talk about a lot of technical things, but this went, you know, all the way into the kernel, and um, it was a little bit outside my comfort zone, but I think uh, we had an exciting conversation. How did that make you feel, Andy?
2: Generally, I'm more comfortable with the technical things than you are, and dealing at a slightly lower level is, is kind of my jam. But... Uh, I do have to admit that talking with Liz brought a little bit of trepidation because she's just such a powerhouse.
1: All right, without any further ado, let's tune into the podcast. Hi, it's Mark, and welcome to DevOps Sauna. We have a really interesting guest today. We have Liz Rice, the Chief Open Source Officer at Esovalent. Cilium has recently expanded their... <laughs> Hi, Liz.
0: (laughs) Hi. (laughs) I may have come in a bit early there. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Uh, Completely cool. Um, Cillium's recently expanded their network overlay provider to become a full-fledged service mesh running without a sidecar. And we're really excited to have you on the program here today. Um, Andy uh, has been really excited, but to me, like psyllium has been this flower child, tree hugger, gluten free thing that we put into our baking. But I don't think that's why Andy's quite so excited. <laughs> but I can tell. <laughs> but I can tell Liz, you're really excited as well. So uh, please tell us about psyllium.
0: Yeah, so um, the psyllium project has been around for a few years now, and it's probably best known as a networking plugin for Kubernetes. It provides networking connectivity and security and observability for connecting your pods. And it's based on a kernel technology called eBPF. Essentially we can run parts of Cilium within the Linux kernel and that enables us to do some really efficient well, to do a lot of networking things very efficiently and to be able to observe network packets incredibly efficiently. And and from that, build this identity-aware picture of how different Kubernetes components are connected, how your different application pods are connected, how different services are communicating together. And more recently, yeah, we've extended that to support a lot of service mesh features. So around the end of 2021, we released a beta program for Cilium Service Mesh, and that's been really exciting to see the reaction to
2: that. And so my introduction to Cilium was I was trying to deploy a billing system for a telco provider inside of Kubernetes and all the things that come along with that. And one of the requirements was all the networking traffic had to be encrypted. So we were using Istio for our ingress and we just said, okay, let's make this MTLS enabled and everything went fine except we had sidecars everywhere and the sidecars had to start up before the network traffic would open and the applications didn't always like that and they wouldn't come up on time and we had a lot of issues with uh, resource constraints due to the sidecars everywhere and timing of things coming up and it just didn't go as we had hoped. So I started searching around and what can we do, and I found Cilium. And I thought, okay, hey, I can get rid of the sidecars and still have an encrypted network. Fantastic. Put it in, and it worked as advertised. Everything was great. And then I noticed that, well, wait a second. They also have this thing called Hubble which comes with Cilium. What do I get? Oh, look at this. And with Hubble, I was able to see this application is sending this packet to that application, which is sending this packet to that endpoint and I was able to visualize everything that was happening in the network. And it brought so much value. And then I used it, I loved it, it was fantastic. And then I heard about this beta and I started playing around with that a bit. And I'm really excited for this to come out of beta.
0: <laughs> this is so great to hear. Thanks, Andy.
1: Have you had many other uh reactions to uh people using the service mesh beta?
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the reaction we've had very much echo what Andy said there. So people find sidecars resource hungry. I mean, every if you have an instance of the network proxy in every single pod, then every one of those proxies has its own copy of routing information um, you know every single one has its own executables it's you know the, it, it all adds up and if the routing information is substantial if you've got a, a large set of endpoints to connect to then having that routing information duplicated in every single pod can you know be a significant amount of memory but i think i was even more surprised at the the number of people who were more concerned about the complexity of sidecars and exactly what you were referring to there, Andy, about how the order in which things happen as you bring up a pod can kind of get messed up if you have sidecars, you know, and maybe you haven't just got your service mesh sidecar. You might also have logging and uh, security tooling. There's a whole series of different tools that have traditionally been implemented using sidecars and they can kind of get in each other's way
2: exactly you can't just say let's put the sidecars in it in it container so it starts up first because it needs to run all the time so you have to somehow figure out how to set your application to wait for the other containers to be ready before that container starts and it just it's a headache
0: absolutely yes and there could be kind of uh well you know this sidecar container might need the networking connectivity in place before it can do what it needs to do to to you know get started so it can get quite complex quite quickly and i think the the issues that people run into sort of operationally and also just making sure that they've got those sidecars injected it it just creates more headache for people operationally and so i was really um surprised uh, the level to which people just say, "I just want to get rid of sidecars because they're just too operationally complex." So having one instance of your your proxy per node seems to appeal to a lot of people from a from a kind of administrative operational perspective.
2: And you mentioned that this is built on ebpf. Can you open up a little bit what that is and?
0: Sure, yeah. So EBPF stands for um, Extended Barclay Packet Filter. And to be honest, that acronym is completely useless. It doesn't really tell us anything about what EBPF does. So EBPF allows us to run custom programs in the kernel. We can load programs into the kernel and attach them to different events, and then they, they run dynamically whenever those events occur. And those events could be things like a network packet arriving. So we can inspect or maybe even manipulate that network packet from within an eBPF program. Or we can attach into, can actually attach to any function call across the whole kernel, but we often see um, attaching to system calls. So you can see when user space is interacting with the kernel. a huge array of places that we can hook into. Some of them have been used extensively for metrics. There's there's a whole series of, of tools. Um, Brendan Gregg at Netflix did a whole load of pioneering work to show how you can observe what's happening across the whole system using these eBPF tools. Um, and now we're seeing that kind of observability extended more into security tooling as well. We've been uh, working on some uh, another sub-project in Cilium called Tetragon that uh, extends that observability into, okay, let's look at potentially malicious events from a security perspective. So there's lots of exciting things that we can do with eBPF, networking, metrics, security you know, observability in general. I mean, Andy, you mentioned Hubble and the, the fact that we can show you exactly what's happening with every network packet, and that's possible because of eBPF.
2: Yeah. I was explaining this to a client and trying to get them to let me share the value of Cilium with them. Let let me install this, please. I promise you'll like it. And trying to explain to them how the, how the eBPF modules work a bit. And they said, well, this sounds like something so new and fancy. I don't know if I trust this kind of loading stuff into the kernel. Well, have you ever used TCP dump? You know, we use it all the time. Exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. We're just building on that exact idea and expanding it a bit to give us these other visibility hooks. Ah, I get it now. <laughs> so that was the thing for them.
0: I mean, I think it's a reasonable question for people to ask. I mean, it's, it's a new a pretty new technology to a lot of people. And the idea that you can change the behavior of your kernel, I, I can see why that you know raises questions. People should be asking questions about, well, does that have consequences? I think a big part of the answer to that is uh, the eBPF verifier. So when you load an eBPF program into the kernel, uh, it runs through this verification pro- process that ensures that that program is going to be safe to run because you do not want to crash the kernel, that would be a very bad day. Uh, So the verifier ensures that the program is going to run to completion, that it's not gonna dereference any null pointers, anything like that, and that it's um, accessing memory that it's supposed to access. And that verification process makes it much safer in general than, or it's, it's much more, likely to be safe than most kernel module i mean no disrespect to kernel modules but kernel modules don't go through anything like this kind of verification process and uh and that's one of the reasons why i think ebpf has really taken off because it's so much safer to run
2: mm-hmm. yeah too often we look at something and well, I need to load a kernel module. Well, I know what kernel modules are, so yes, this is fine. And then you come up with eBPF and this is injecting something into the kernel that, well, I don't don't feel comfortable with that. But if you look at what it's really doing, it's even better than a kernel module.
0: Absolutely. And the other beauty about it is that you can do it dynamically. So if we load a eBPF program, it instantly gets, visibility into you know whatever the event is that it's attached to so it can observe pre-existing processes you don't have to restart any of your applications because the kernel already was aware of those processes and your yeah. eBPF program is hooked into that so this kind of dynamic ability to to just start measuring things or start affecting things or or even mitigate um security issues that that we can do with with eBPF, the fact that we can load them dynamically is a really huge bonus. Mm. It's also one of the interesting things about um, the the sidecar model and or moving away from the sidecar model. If you want to instrument something using a sidecar, you're going to have to restart that pod so that you can inject the tooling as a sidecar container. Whereas if we have something running using eBPF we just have to start the eBPF tooling and you know we may need to point it at like yeah we want you to look at all the pre-existing processes or or, or you know but it can access everything that's happening on that machine which is
2: really right powerful because it's running in the kernel of the host. It, by definition, has visibility of everything. And we just load that, please look at these specific bits and tell me what's happening. Could you describe
1: for me a use case for that?
0: So I think observability tooling would probably be the the sort of most straightforward example of that. Um, say, for example, you want to... There's a, there's a project called Parker that... Um, Uh, is using eBPF to generate flame graphs showing how CPU utilization, and I believe they also do memory resource utilization. And you can start that and it can instantly instrument pre-existing processes. You don't need to modify your application and you don't even need to restart them. And you can start getting these resource usage graphs, which I think is a very visual way of seeing the power of eBPF as a technology, and I mean, I suppose other examples exist across Cilium. Right? We're, you know, we're able to run Hubble and pick up the networking traffic. I mean, it requires Cilium to be, you know, we we use Hubble kind of in conjunction with with Cilium. But you can start Hubble after your network connections are already in place, and Hubble will start showing you those. Those network flows, you didn't need to kind of restart anything for those flows to be picked up by Hubble, much like TCP dump. I mean, you know, you can use that on a pre existing network connection. Well, I like guess pre existing network interface, but yeah.
1: So monitoring, observability, uh, dependencies, things like this as, as needed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not it, like
1: just running all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you can sort of add and remove that observability as you, you know, if you want to get more detailed information you could run an eBPF based tool you don't have to necessarily run all the tools all the time you can use turn on the things that you this speaks i think a lot to the um the work that the bcc project did and bpf trace where this is a, a lot of Brendan gregg's work you know you you can run those tools as needed on your existing kind of production machines to see you know to debug issues that you're 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 seeing you know to find out what the the causes of of I don't know whatever issues latency issues or something that you're seeing
2: if we if we kind of zoom out now from eBPF back to cilium uh so cilium is using exactly this eBPF technology and giving us the network of vis- observability the network security network policies etc in KubeCon, I attended your talk, and it was really good, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, about why Cilium, or Cilium's uh, expansion to become a full service mesh. And you started with this section about why Cilium is basically 80% of a service mesh already. It's not fair to say, can you re give your talk in audio format? <laughs> but can you walk us through that a little bit?
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I joined iSavonen, it's coming up about 18 months ago now. And one of the conversations that I had with with Thomas Thomas Graff, the CTO, quite early on, I remember him saying, "Well, yeah, we're already kind of an eighty percent service mesh. Okay, let's let's talk through talk through what that means." And if we think about what a service mesh is, well, one strong requirement that people have from service mesh is observability. Well, we have Cilium, we have Hubble, we have very good visibility into all the network flows looking for um connectivity between services well you know that's that's kind of networking i think it it, mm-hmm. it when we think about how services connect to each other in kubernetes you don't need a service mesh to have one service talk to another service they they can find each other and they can uh communicate with each other it becomes much more about things like um, ingress capabilities, about routing, you know often at layer seven at the application layer, um, so routing ingress traffic to different backends based on what path has been requested, or what protocol, what headers are involved in those requests, all that path routing is really it, it, it's eventually going to boil down to load balancing. We're going to have to decide where to you know which backend to send. Traffic to Cilium already has load balancing. Already had load balancing in the form of Cube Proxy. Cube Proxy is a load balancer that basically says, "Here's a request destined for a service. Which backend pod should I send it to?" And that's kind of very similar to what's happening with Service Mesh. Right? We're taking requests and we're sending them to different backend pods. Uh, Security, the the encryption, Uh, and that's another thing that we already had in Cilium at the network layer. We had WireGuard and IPsec for encryption. And there are some things that we didn't necessarily have already. The things we didn't have was mutual TLS and the kind of uh, layer seven traffic management capabilities that uh, things like retries or um, canary canary rollouts. But those things are handled in a lot of service meshes by, well, they're handled by a proxy. And, and for many service meshes, it's Envoy. And we were already using Envoy for layer seven visibility so that we could do things like layer seven network policies. So we already had that proxy capable of doing all of these layer seven traffic management features. We just weren't configuring it to do those things yet. So if we put all those things together and we say, well, we already do load balancing, we already do um, you know, resilient connectivity, we already understand about Kubernetes identities and, and we can do network policy based on not just layer three, four, but also layer seven. We have all this observability built in. What else do we actually need to do? And an awful lot of it was really just about, okay, how can we configure the proxy to... You know, how can how can we program the proxy to set up the data plane that we that we need? So in the service mesh beta, we introduced the Cilium ingress. So you can create a Kubernetes ingress that's marked as a Cilium type ingress, and it will automatically set up uh, the the underlying load balancer which ingresses typically do anyway and it will set up the what we call cilium envoy config which is the programming of envoy to handle that ingress traffic and that that might involve things like based on the path that's being requested or the protocol type where do i want to route that traffic to um yeah so that those are the kind of probably the biggest things that we introduced with service mesh beta, the ingress and the Cilium Envoy configuration. And I guess we already had the Envoy proxy built into the Cilium agent that runs per node. So it was a natural choice for us to say, we can run one proxy per node then, you know, we're we're already using it for you know, for getting this layer seven visibility, why can't we just extend that? And we had to figure out how we were going to program different listeners for different traffic. You know, we have, if you have multiple uh, ingresses or multiple Envoy configurations, that's going to configure different listeners within Envoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but you know, so far so good. I think it's it's a model that people you know, responding to, responding to you very positively, like you right. did, Andy. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, it's Andy. Earlier this year, I was able to go to Valencia and see KubeCon live, and I saw a talk from Liz about this very topic. And it was a good one, which prompted this podcast. We have a link to that talk in the show notes if you're interested, or you can contact us at Code and we'd be happy to tell you more. And one thing I want to kind of dig out or clarify a little bit, you say that one thing that's missing is the MTLS, but... uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you mean by that is really the application pod to application endpoint, full chain, basically pod to pod, container to container type of MTLS. Because already the Cilium overlay network is encrypted from node to node. So we already have an encrypted network, but you're just talking about ratcheting it up a little bit higher to the pod level.
0: Exactly, exactly. So network layer encryption. Already existed. This is more about if you have one application talking to another application and setting up, you know, HTTPS right, right. connection, yeah. um, and needing the identity, typically a, a certificate, to right. to to set that up. And that's something that um, service meshes will often allow you to automate um so in cilium service mesh today we don't have that mtls automation but we do have the network layer encryption right. and we have a very um exciting um vision of how this is going to evolve and i think this will be something that we see coming out over the next you know few few months hopefully the next uh, cilium release where the idea is to separate the authentication part, the bit where we say, I I recognize the identity of each end of the one end recognizes the other end and vice versa, um, to separate that authentication process that happens in TLS from the encryption part. And if we can continue to use the network layer encryption, but use the Certificate or the identities that have been exchanged, and insert those certificates into the kernel layer to do network layer encryption. Uh, that should be, I think it will resolve. It gives the equivalent functionality of MTL. You know, it's not strictly MTLS because we're not using the TLS part of the the, the encryption part. We'll be doing that in the network layer, but it fulfills those two halves of cryptographic authentication and and the subsequent encryption of traffic in a really neat way. The other nice thing about it is that we see that being configured. It could be a certificate manager that configures those certificates. We could be integrated with Spiffy um, for managing those identities. We can be agnostic to that kind of control plane for identities. Which is similar to the to the service mesh approach that we're taking. We're programming essentially a service mesh data plane, and we have ingress as an example of a, a control plane that says, "Okay, how do we want to program that data plane? How should traffic be routed?" Uh, but ingress, you know, is not the the sort of be all and end all of how people want to configure service mesh. And the next step is to integrate with. Other control plane interfaces, which could be service mesh interface (SMI), could be Istio, could be you know, Linkerd configurations. All these things are possible. It's really a case of where the community takes us. But to make it easier for people to use their existing control plane with the Cilium service mesh as the data plane, fulfilling what the control plane uh, wants to program.
2: Right. I'm maybe a little bit stuck on this uh, security and encryption bit that we we were talking earlier but I love the way you explained that that kind of implementing it in a slightly different way but achieving the same objective.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it's the f- first time this has been done. I'm trying to I'm struggling to remember the uh the name of this but there have been sort of Approaches for separating out this kind of network, the the authentication part and the encryption part. So you know, it's it's a proven technique. We we just
2: it is, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was growing up, we had this huge, huge TV, and it took up so much space in the living room. And I always like, why can't this be smaller? But you know, physics. You have to have the CRT display. You just simply can't make it. smaller. And then suddenly we come up with LCD screens and, well, physics changed because it's a completely different technology. So instead of having a CRT, we have an LCD. It's really slim and small. So instead of saying, well, let's change how physics works, we just change how it's done. And I love this idea that MTLS means a certain specific thing. But what it's trying to accomplish is secure communications based on authenticated identities. So instead of doing it the same way that's been done before, you go back to those fundamental principles of what do we need to do and have a better way of accomplishing the same thing, which gives you so many other benefits.
0: Absolutely. And one of the reasons I think this will be beneficial is because we're pushing more of this into the kernel. The network layer encryption can happen within the kernel which will be really efficient and this is part of i think the really exciting evolution that eBPF enables you know if we go back i don't know how many decades but a long time ago people used to write their own tcp stack or they'd import a tcp library into their application so that they could do tcp connectivity and you know nobody expects to do that now of course we expect that to be handled from the kernel and why shouldn't that direction of travel continue? Why shouldn't we see more of this networking functionality handled by the kernel kind of that you know as the as the norm and e b p f means that we can do that in a kind of almost like a piecemeal fashion and and we can experiment with this without having the whole kernel to you know we, we don't have to have the kernel support these as upstream features because we can program. Uh, we can add these capabilities using eBPF and people can opt into uh, having that functionality in the kernel. And uh, I think that's really exciting, You know how, how we can see that um, evolution happening more quickly because eBPF enables it.
2: Mm-hmm. And of course, I know what I remember saying, but do you see or how do you see performance benefits by moving things to the kernel instead of sidecar's?
0: Yeah, we see significant improvements there. Performance benefits to be had at the networking layer, even if we don't worry about service mesh. And the reason why the using eBPF for networking in a Kubernetes environment improves performance is because we shorten the network path, path that packets have to take. So if we imagine a, a packet arriving at the physical interface to a machine, and it's destined for one of the pods on that machine. And in a traditional environment, it would need to be routed by the host's networking stack based on the IP address of the the destination pod. And that kind of routing path would lead it to a virtual ethernet connection between the host and the pod. So the pod has its own networking namespace and, that namespace is connected to the host using this virtual ethernet connection we may as well you know you can picture it like there's a physical ethernet connection between those two things and then inside the pod there's another networking stack that the packet has to traverse to get to the application but with eBPF in in each of those networking stacks there's a whole load of things going on and a whole load of possible routing decisions that might be taken in a sort of generic all-purpose networking stack in practice in kubernetes we you know we can look at that address we know that it's destined for a pod or Cilium has set up that ip address to be associated with uh, network identity we know where to send it and we can take it directly from the network interface pretty much as soon as it arrives on that machine and we can send it directly into the networking namespace of the pod. We don't have to kind of traverse the whole networking stack on the host. So you can massively shortcut the networking path that that packet has to take. So we already see some pretty significant improvements in performance just with straightforward Kubernetes networking. Then if we think about service mesh, the traditional path that a packet would have to take with a sidecar gets even more convoluted because it arrives in the net, in the pod, in the network namespace for the pod. It has to go through the proxy. So it goes through the networking stack all the way up to user space where the proxy handles it back down into the network stack proxy is going to send that packet on to the application, has to go all the way through the networking stack in the in the pods network namespace to reach the application. Incidentally, during that period of time, albeit it's on one machine, but if you're using MTLS between two different pods, it's encrypted between the proxies. It's not encrypted between the actual endpoints. So you're traffic while it's traversing the network namespace within the pod is unencrypted. This is another benefit of the approach that we'll be taking with this um, kind of network encryption. It's as soon as the the packet arrives from the application into the network namespace and immediately gets encrypted, um, that's another improvement that we're going to see, not just efficiency, but also you know, that the packets will be encrypted for a greater amount of their lifetime. Right. We can't avoid the transition into user space for, when we need to go to the proxy for layer seven termination, we still have to go to user space. And and that's true in Cilium Service Mesh or any service mesh, it's gonna have to go to that proxy. But if we have two proxies in two different sidecars, it necessarily has to make that transition twice. Whereas if we only have one proxy per node, we only have to potentially make that transition the one time and that can be right. pretty significant saving.
2: So we're kind of shortening the route, improving how the encryption is done, and of course running it on the host kernel instead of a container of a virtualized kernel and whatnot. So we're getting all kinds of benefits there.
0: I might wanna stop you there, rewind you there for a second. So okay. one of the um, interesting things about containers is that they, they don't have their own kernel they have that they have a network namespace in the kernel but it's it is still the host's kernel but it's the host's kind of i'm assigning you this network namespace pod and i'm going to handle packets on your behalf within this namespace um. <laughs>
1: So we've talked a lot about benefits. Are is there some risk mitigation as well? Are there are there risks to this approach? Or is there, is there anything that people might uh we talked about a few things that people might think are risks, you know, kernel modules versus eBPF and things like that. But are there some other risks that are either being mitigated or that people might think that perhaps are not really risks from this?
0: Yeah, so one I guess question that people have asked about the per node proxy model is whether that makes the you know that single proxy a a single point of compromise from a security perspective you know if, if all of your traffic is passing through that proxy does that increase the um the security risk and i think there is some legitimacy to that argument because you know you have got one component but what, one mitigation and one kind of philosophical point i think i would make about that and so the mitigation is Well, you're not required to only have one proxy per node. So there is no reason why you couldn't run additional proxies. So um, one option that we've not had a a strong requirement for this yet, but um, having a proxy per namespace might be an interesting compromise that allows you to achieve a lot of the efficiencies, but allows you to keep some separation between different applications if you're worried about that, that kind of point of failure. I think philosophically the thing that people think about when they think about these kind of isolation layers they forget that there is one kernel there is only one kernel on that machine on that host and all of your traffic is going through that kernel and we trust the kernel and of course occasionally there are security vulnerabilities in the kernel and and you know that that is Obviously a, a problem, but by and large, we expect the kernel to be able to safely handle traffic from all of our components. Now, the proxy is a complex piece of software. So I don't think anybody could responsibly say there's never going to be any security issues in it. Of course, there will is software. Software always has bugs. It's it's inevitable. But it's a very well-used and well-hardened piece of code. It's increasingly being used and hardened. And why should we philosophically think it's okay to have one kind of point of failure in the kernel, but not okay to have one point of failure in the in user space? And the answer might be, because I want to really, really minimize my risk, okay? Or have multiple proxies. You know, there can be a balance here. I don't think we need to be looking at that, that kind of um, single piece of software that does have a mechanism, has this listener mechanism for isolating different different traffic. We already see um, proxies used in ingresses that may be handling traffic for a number of different components. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of places where we do already use proxies to handle traffic that is destined for or comes from different applications. I don't think we're we're dramatically changing the landscape by saying, well, we could use one proxy, you know, within the network as well as at the edge of the network.
1: Cool. We are starting to get towards the end of our time. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us, Liz? Or is there, there anything coming? Um at the time of recording, we are in uh middle of June. This will probably be coming out a bit later. But uh is there anything you'd like to to tell us before we
0: sign out. Um, is this a good time to talk about like the release coming out? Is
1: that... Yeah. yeah okay, this
0: is a yeah. great time. All right. So yeah, as we're recording, we are in the closing phases of putting together Cilium release 1.12. Um, there've been a couple of release candidates already, so we're pretty close to getting the, the stable GA version of that release out of the door. So I expect by the time this is published, it will be uh, ready and available. And that includes the stable version of Cilium Service Mesh Ingress, which is I think one of the most important components. So I'm um, very excited to see what happens when people start putting that into uh, production environments. It'll be, it'll be really, really great to hear how people get on with that.
1: All right, would you like to give us a summary of what you learned, Andy?
2: So what we talked about was starting at the low level and allowing us to get better performance from the network as well as better control and visibility, as just mentioned. Uh, Now the service mesh functionality, which is coming out, is basically just polishing that a little bit, adding the ingress capability, and adding us the control plane mechanisms to uh, run this as a full-fledged service mesh. And get all of our kind of uh, eggs in one basket for good or bad, <laughs> but have one place to kind of run all these things and get all the benefits and and take care of all the service mesh needs. This has been really interesting and really good to kind of go through this. So
1: it has. It's been wonderful. I've I've learned a lot. Um, I have two. Uh, Final questions, uh, Liz. Something that we've started to ask uh, all of our podcast guests. Um, Can you remember when you were a child, what was the first thing that you remember that you wanted to be when you grow up?
0: So my earliest memory of this is people asking me whether I wanted to be a doctor like my mother. And I knew I did not want to be. No, definitely not. So I had a much clearer idea of what I didn't want to be. And then, as soon as I started, kind of getting exposed to computing, um, we actually had a ZX eighty. It was super early computer, and awesome. I, yeah. I, I, as soon as I started on that, I thought this is where my. Where my life will be, this, <laughs> you know, with a, f- a few little, you know. Obviously, I, I, occasionally thought no, but I'll I'll go and be an astronaut or you know. But, but uh, in in reality, I think I pretty much knew computing was was what I wanted to do.
1: All right. you You've almost answered the second question as well, but um, I'll give it a try anyway. So it could go either way. Was there a point in your life where you realized that you, you needed to take a different path? Or was there a different point in your life maybe than that where it kind of crystallized that you're on the right one?
0: So I spent the first, I don't know, at least decade of my career, like after graduation, working on essentially network protocols and, um, you know, all this kind of low level computing. And there was a point where I thought, you know, I I just want to understand more. I want to step away from all this detail that nobody, you know, in the real world knows about. And I want to look at more consumer facing things. So I worked for a while for Skype uh, and I worked at a music recommendation, company called Last FM. And uh, after that, I worked in uh, some startups around sort of recommendations, like TV recommendations. And I did at some point realize, you know what? I have more interest in getting back to the sort of lower level technology. I learned so much looking at things from that kind of consumer perspective and um, you know, there, were, there was a few years where I wasn't writing code myself and I learned a lot, but I definitely uh, realized what I'd been missing when I came back to the kind of, uh, it was c- containers that brought me back to kind of proper technology again.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. That's a great story. Thanks again, Liz. Um, this is Mark and Andy and Liz Rice from the Eficode DevOps Sona podcast. Thank you and see you next episode. Thanks. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you would like to continue the conversation with Liz Rice, you can find her social media profile from the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. And check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, let's give our honored guest an opportunity to introduce herself. I say now take care of yourselves, and feel free to reach out to Andy and I for any topics or people you'd like to hear more about.
0: Hi, my name is Liz Rice. I am Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent, which is the company that originally created the Cilium project.
1: My name is Mark Dillon. I've been in Finland for somewhere more than 17 winters now. I've been building products my whole life, and I believe that if you build the people first, then you have a strong culture that builds the best products.
2: Hi, my name's Andy Allred. I've been in Finland for over 20 years already. I started my career in the US Navy in nuclear-powered fast attack submarines, doing all kinds of cool tech stuff and learning that uh, tech is there to serve a mission which people have. And then I've spent my career in IT and mostly telecoms, figuring out how tech can serve the mission of people and support the processes and the people in their jobs.